That is Baird, the Gay Dad Podcast with Alex Megan and Young Daniel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Daddy Squared. I'm Alex. I'm Jan, and Alex, I want to tell you something about my morning. Okay. So here I am. I woke up at 5 a.m. today because I had this whole morning played out for me. I will go to the gym because I had like two hours uh, at eight o'clock, and I made the kid breakfast, helped him with the bags, made snacks, made sure they're dressed up and all ready to go. And I'm like, okay, so I have to do uh, half an hour of work before I go. And I had the exact amount. Everything was like ticking, <laughs> like a clock. And then, boom! Adam lost his hat. Okay, so for everyone who sees us on Instagram, Adam always goes with a brown hat. It's basically a piece of fabric at this point because it's so old and falling apart, but he won't wear a different one. So go ahead, yes, he, he misplaced his hat. And at the beginning, you know, you have these things where there is the phase where you, sell, you say to them, you threw it somewhere and now I have to look for it. So why don't you look for it yourself? So I, I passed that phase and it came to a point where he said to me, never mind, I'll just go without it. And I saw that he was crying like Aww. adult crying, you know, it, not like, like really to himself. And it really broke my heart. So I said to him, you know what, I'm going to help you. So... We turned the house upside down looking for it, and it just wasn't there. And at this point, I realized, listen, this is not a regular I lost my hat. This was had an extra element to it. It's like, a I'm con- like it there's is, a conspiracy, is what yeah, you're saying. Well, not against my, well, it was against my and my working and my, <laughs> my morning, but, but, you know, I became obsessed with it. I'm like, this is not a regular thing. Okay. So I came to Ben, and I'm like, everybody's looking for this hat. You are playing outside. Why don't you get out of yourself? And come and help us look for it. And he's like, okay. And he's like coming to help. And in between, I try to do some work and I just can't concentrate because I'm thinking about the day that my son is going to have without his hat. And he's so important to him and it's, it's part of him. I am so excited to find out what the upshot okay. of this story is. Okay, so then we already have to go. Like it's already past our time. And Adam said to me, you know what? I'm going to go without the hat because I can't find it. At, and I see that it's late already. And as we go out, the hat is in one of the plants <laughs> that is like arranging in the, in the balcony. Uh. Now, and Adam like picks it up and he's like, how did it get there? Mm. Okay. How did it get there? Ben hid it from him and he forgot. Oh! Okay. Listen, guys. At that point when I discovered what happened, I just started crying. I couldn't be angry. Like, it's, it was beyond anger. Like, the whole morning was ruined for me. I did not go to the gym, okay? And Ben thought it was funny or whatever, vindictive yesterday, and he just hid the hat, and he forgot that he did that. And he was playing outside what I was ruining my morning looking for the hat. I can't do this anymore. All right. Well, look, here's the thing. Uh, this was just a very explicit story around what every parent tells people who are intended parents, which is all of your planning will go to hell when you have kids. You won't be able to have any of the structure that you thought you were going to, ha- to have. I will say this to you. I really believe this. Ben and Adam might not 
remember this specific story, but what was it in the movie Inside Out? You have created a, what was that kind of memory called? Core memory? You have created some kind of element of a core memory today because of the way you turned the house upside down to find that hat with your kid. He will internalize the fact that you didn't just wave him away and ignore the things that he cared about. And I mean that. And and I happen to know that you come from a background where your parents may have loved you deeply and may have supported you in terms of your physical well-being, but they didn't have a lot of patience for your crap. And you have demonstrated that you do have patience and caring for his crap, and he won't forget that. Okay, well, thank you. But I wanted to also ask the audience, like, you guys, did you have some sort of experiences like that? Because the thought that I was having to myself is it was beyond my day being ruined. It wasn't about that even. It was deeper than that. It was about how am I, as a parent, supposed to have, like, these superpowers of tracking situations when I'm not even in. By the way, if you want to contact us and tell us about how your morning has been destroyed or elevated to glory, uh, email us at hello at daddysqr.com. Or on Instagram at daddysqr. Uh, what is this Instagram? Okay, so here. So the last episode, we talked about uh, going to the gym and working out and motivations and all that sorts of thing. But I think that one of the most important thing was around shame that we talked with uh, the trainer, Chris. Mm-hmm. And um, so on Instagram, we have this account that supports our podcast on a day-to-day basis. And on this Instagram, I talk to other dads and other people, um, mostly about the conversations that we are doing here, right here on the podcast. So I wanted to read to you something actually from our Instagram. So it's Jesse, a physical therapist from Colorado. You can see part of the chat that I had with him on, on the post on Instagram, but I wanted to read some of it. And I would like, the reason why I take the time to read, because you can read it yourself maybe, on Instagram. Um, But I really want it to be documented on our podcast as well because I think that uh, when we talk about working out and these people who look to us like they're, you look at him and he's like perfect, perfect body. And here's what he had to say. Alex, do you want to read it? Yeah, I'll read it. Let me read it. Certainly there are times when I'm exhausted or when I plan to go in the evening after the kids are in bed and maybe that bedtime was a challenge and I feel mentally fried. Jesse tells us, Uh, I think in those moments, I tell myself that I know every movement counts. Even if it's not the best workout of my life, it's still worth going. And universally, I know after my workout, the endorphin release will give me a mental boost. Maybe that's what I look forward to the most when I'm feeling blah about going. Well, yes. I just want to say I know about that endorphin release. It's so funny. It we happens talked to me, about this. It, yeah, it happens to me more in cardio than in weights, but like I get on my bike in the morning and I'm like, yeah, all right. And then three minutes in, I'm like, I will rule the world. I am king of the universe. It's great. <laughs> um, and, and then we chatted more about shame. You know, so this week, um, this past week was uh, World's Mental Health Day. Okay. And... Part of the things that I wanted him to uh, to chat with me about is about uh, the shame that people have going to the gym and seeing all those guys who look perfect. And here's what he had to say. I was the skinny gay kid in school in my small town who got pushed up against lockers and called names in the lunchroom. Maybe it's from my own personal experience as a skinny kid. Maybe it's from my work as a physical therapist. But I can tell you this. 
Never have I looked at a person who is out of shape or skinny, who is exercising and had any internalized moment of scoffing at them or turning my nose in the air. Universally, it's been an internal monologue of, you go boy, get it, or good for you. Do not be self-conscious at the gym. And that's the words of Jesse, a physical therapist in Colorado, not Alex. <laughs> right. so, uh, that's not a from, Jewish uh, person from New York City. You guys, we would love to get some of your opinions, not only about this, but about basically everything that's parenting and gay. Uh, you can contact, contact us at Daddy Squared on Instagram, and we would love to chat with you and feature you as well. So it's really important for me to really you know, get us as a, as a community to get people to know each other. Especially in light of what has happened over the past two years. You know, this pandemic, of course, the most horrible aspect is that it killed many, many people. That is true. But there is a secondary effect, which I have felt, honestly, from the very beginning, being a, a social and communicative person. But I think that other people didn't necessarily feel it, and yet it was there, which is the isolation that has come from these lockdowns and the attitude that it has created amongst people that other people are to be distanced from. I mean, we have signs that say, keep your distance. And when you think about the impact that that has had on us, community has fallen apart. And, you know, there are these studies, right, that what yeah. do the studies say, that we've become meaner. The Wall Street, Wall Street Journal. Journal which is funny when it's the Wall Street Journal. But, but still, look, I mean, it's true. Um, I see that my interactions with other people have become more remote. I think that that has created a tremendous distance between people. And I hope that everyone who's listening to this can take advantage of an opportunity to randomly talk to some nice person on the street and say hi. It feels really really good when you do it, try it. Daddy Squared. Daddy Squared, the Gay Dads podcast. Each episode, we bring on a specialist to tackle an issue that may arise for gay dads raising kids. And today, we're going to talk about children's fear. That's a big one. Whew. It's not necessarily for gay dads. So hi, moms. <laughs> That's true. Oh, so much. Listen, we always say to ourselves, where's the gay whenever we try to come up with what one of these episodes are? Because gay parenting overlaps in so many ways with straight parenting, not in every way, but you know, our music is better, as I like to point out. Uh, but there are tremendous overlaps, and this is definitely one of them. So we brought somebody who I became a fan of, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She's the founder and executive director of the Center of Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. She's also the co-author with Dan Siegel of a New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline. Each of them has been translated to over 50 languages. Wow. I recently read her book, The Power of Showing Up, and I wanted to discuss some of the ideas there. Uh, this is where I became a fan of her, because this, is, this book is like, it's amazing, really. Um, and it's directly related to children's fear, which is an issue that we're dealing with right now. Oh, yes, we are. All right, so let's go to our interview with Tina Payne Bryson. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, Thank you for joining us today. I am so excited to be with you guys today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, sure. So we're going to dive right in. We're, we're focusing uh, today on children's fears. So how can we help kids cope with fears in general? I'm going to give you specific, but, uh, but let's, uh, let's start okay. with that. 
the very first thing we have to talk about is that we first have to remember how much we set the tone and the meaning for our kids. So what I mean by that is we are meaning makers. You know when you have an infant or a toddler and they hear a scary noise, like a helicopter overhead or something, the first thing they do is look at your face. And if your face looks scared, that creates meaning for, wow, that's dangerous. And that's how they respond. They respond then with fear. They follow primarily in their early years are nonverbals um, that create that meaning. And, and of course, throughout our life, um, we if we're in a room, there's this great um, uh, social media viral video going around right now of this guy who's freaking his girlfriend out. And all he does is just start panicking and screaming and running out of the room. And she immediately panics and runs out of the room, even though she has no idea why. <laughs> this is exactly how we're wired because it's a it gives us the greatest chance to stay alive. Now, if the helicopter sound startles your, your baby or toddler and they look at your face and you say, oh, did you hear the helicopter? Oh, it's so loud. Look, it's moving in the sky. And you're curious and, and not afraid that creates the meaning. So what I'm saying here is that we are not at fault for all of our children's fears, but we play a big role in how they construct the meaning of it, how tolerable the fear is and how to respond to it. So we have to start with ourselves and our own fears and anxieties. You know, I love that, but but it does raise an interesting question. Early on in their lives, you know, everything is new. So our responses are so important, but you know, we just brought our kid this morning to a camp for the first time. One of our two kids um, has some fear about being there on his, you know, on his own, et cetera, in a new place. And what I find challenging is this question of how do you balance um, embracing their fear, meaning, you know, you don't want to discount it and say, you know, it's nothing. And yet at the other hand, on the other hand, you also, as you said, want to make them feel as if from your perspective, this is going to be fun and easy. So how do you balance this, this desire to, uh, uh, um, to, what's the word Va I'm looking validate? for? Validate. Validate. To validate. Yeah. You know when okay, the Israeli is correcting my English. <laughs> um, so let me try that again. So, I've got you here. Yeah. I've got you here. I'll tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is exactly what you're talking about where we, here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to criticize, minimize, or mobilize. Let me break that down. When we criticize, we're like, why are you getting upset about this? Like every kid goes to camp. It's not that big of a deal. Like it's you're, you're going to have fun. So when you minimize how they feel, that doesn't ever make a child feel like, oh, oh, you're right. I'm not afraid anymore. What right. it does is it leaves them alone with the fear. So the feelings stay the same, but now they've got the message like, okay, they don't get it. They don't get me. And I'm alone with it because they're just going to try and talk me out of it or make me feel like they're criticizing me. And, keep, and one other little thing I have to say about criticism is that when our children share their feelings with us, remember that the brain is an association machine. So if we share our feelings with them and or they share their feelings with us and we criticize them, like, why are you being so sensitive about this? Like you're overreacting when we criticize, they then make an association with, I shared my feelings that didn't feel good. Maybe I'm not going to keep doing right. that. Okay. So we don't want to criticize. We also don't want to minimize, which I kind of threw in there too, where we're like, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Like every, you're going to have fun. And we, we become these like toxic, positive cheerleaders. We're like, it's so fun. Do you know what you're going to get to do today? And we, we try to distract them from all of, all of their feelings. That also does not help because again, 
It doesn't change the feelings. It doesn't give them any strategy to manage it once you leave the parking lot, et cetera. The third thing we don't want to do is to mobilize, which is where we are like, okay, I'm going to go find a camp counselor and I'm going to go tell them that you're freaked out and I'm going to call the camp director and I'm going to make sure I can stay with you all day. You know, like when we mobilize to fix it all, what that accidentally um, communicates to our kids is I don't actually don't trust that you can handle this and I have to go solve everything for you. And in the context of all of this, if y'all made every criticize, minimize and mobilize mistake that I'm throwing out, it does not mean your child is not going to grow up to be a great human being. Okay. Because it's all the most important thing is that our kids know we love the hell out of them and we, you know, whatever. So it, it, we, we can't get neurotic about every little thing that comes out of our mouth and that we handle every situation. Right. Or we will make our, we're just trying to minimize the therapy bill. We realize that there will be a therapy bill. We just want to keep it as low as possible. Okay. Okay. So here's what I would suggest instead of that, path of criticize, minimize, or mobilize, we're going to first empathize. And um, in the whole range child and in no drama discipline, Dan Siegel and I talk about this phrase connect before we redirect. So first we're going to lean into the feeling. And what we're doing is tuning into our child's internal experience, not what we want them to feel, but what they're actually feeling. So we say this, it seems like this is kind of scary for you. Is that right? Or you you seem like you're a little bit afraid. Tell me about that. And so what we do is we create space to do this big strategy that we talk about in our work called name it to tame it. And without getting into the science of it, it's basically that when we accurately name what we are feeling, it gives our whole nervous system some relief, first of all, but it also empowers them because then we can say, yeah, you're feeling fear. You're feeling uncertain. You don't know what to expect. So you're you're really helping them name and and really lean into and acknowledge, validate and empathize with the feeling. Yeah, buddy, that can be really hard when I walk into a new situation or when I went to camp, I felt that too. And so we're really empathizing and naming it. When we name it, it really does tame the feelings. This is also where we can become meaning makers. We can say, you know what, if you, you know, our, your brain is amazing. Your brain's doing its job to say, I'm not sure about this. So I'm going to kind of be more, you know, I'm going to be watching. And that's so great. Your brain's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. So what? that's where we empathize first. And then we can get to the strategies and the solutions and all of those things. Um, one of the things I did a lot as a therapist and as a mom, um, I have three boys, um, is to ask a really important question. A lot of times we make assumptions about what our children are afraid of, and we are completely wrong. So a good question to ask is what's the part that you feel most worried about? And when we get that information, it's often something really solvable. For example, I worked with a, a young um, girl who was going away to a sleepaway camp for the first time. She was eight years old and um, she was refusing to go and, and her mom and dad had made all these assumptions about what was going on. When I asked her that question, she said, I'm afraid I'm going to wet the bed and that will be really embarrassing, right? That was solvable. We had, we had like pull-ups in her sleeping bag. No one saw her put those on, you know, after the lights were out. And once we could solve it, it was great. So you can even say like my four-year-old nephew one time, um, he said, I'm, he was terrified to go into his bathroom. He was afraid. He said, um, there's, I I know it's not true. He said there was a kid in my preschool who said there was a mummy that lived in my bathroom. And he said, I know he's a liar because 
Um, he said he has an octopus that lives in his bathtub and I know octopuses have to be in salt water. So I know he's a liar. I know there's no mummy, but I'm afraid anyway. Mm -hmm. So four-year-olds even know this. So that's when we start empowering them. And that's the second piece after empathy is to empower, which is to say, what do you think would help you feel better? How, you know, would it, would it be helpful to you if I went and asked the counselor to keep an extra eye on you? And you really empower them, like, what would help you? What strategy can you use today? Um, and one other just quick, great tool um, is you can ask kids, what is the bravest animal you can think of or bravest symbol or something like that? You can actually go on Etsy and order temporary tattoos of that animal. Um, or you can get out a pen and draw it right on your kid's oh God, arm. So amazing. And then you do this. Yeah. And you can do this right before, like when my kids were starting a new school, I would actually create a book, part of this name entertainment, like here's what you're going to do at school. So I name all the facts and all the fun things. And I say, sometimes you might miss mom when you're at school and you, you know, you, you might be really sad. Um, so I'm acknowledging and naming the feelings. And then we move to the empowerment. And I say, if you feel afraid or you're sad, you can look at your, and we're big Dodger fans. So you can look at your Dodgers tattoo and remember that mom and dad will be here soon and your teacher will always help you. So this, and that was for a three or four year old. So this is, we can change the language, but it really gives them a a reminder. They look at that and they're like, I'm brave. I can do brave things. Or even if I feel afraid, I can handle it. So we empower them too with strategies. That is, that is excellent. That's really wonderful. I love it. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't have to be sports related, right? Because we're gay men. So, I mean, we can, it can be Katy Perry or whatever, Kylie Minogue. Okay. Um, Anything that empowers them. I had a, kids are hilarious too. Cause I'll ask them, you know, in therapy, I would say, well, what's the bravest animal you can think of? And you know, they're like a snail and I'm like, okay, we're going with it. <laughs> so COVID-19, we ca- we are coming back from a two years of pandemic where we actually kept distance from people. And that probably sparked some fears among kids. Um, how do we go back, go back to normal with that? How do we tell them that, I mean, it's not that everything's, fine now we still can get catch COVID-19 but but you know the um, the perception of of people as danger um has I think has been altered for little kids oh gosh I have so much to say about this the first thing to know is that one of the reasons the pandemic was so hard one of many reasons for us and for our children is that the brain hates unpredictability because unpredictability signals potential threat now the the whole nervous system is always in the state of trying to determine, are we safe or is there a threat or danger here? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, um, this amazing um, expert named Stephen Porges who uses this gorgeous word called neuroception, which is a type of perception that we're not typically aware of where our whole nervous system is trying to always determine and perceive is there threat or is there danger? What we want to do is give our kids neuroception of safety in the world and around people. The best way we can do that is by being predictable and creating predictability. Now, that does not mean um, monotony. We need novelty, too, as long as we feel safe. So creating rhythms and fee- and uh, and routines and rituals in your home, um, you know, schools getting ready, you know, when school starts or on school mornings, um, having a playlist that your kids help you create. And that's a school morning playlist or it's something you listen to in the car. Um my family, our routines and rhythms are very food related. So every Saturday morning we have breakfast burritos. Um, you know, every Thursday morning I make oatmeal in the crock pot overnight and we have oatmeal and berries in the morning, etc. Creating these rhythms and routines or, or saying, here's what's happening this week. And you kind of preview that kind of thing. So creating predictability is a huge piece of this. The other thing I would say is play and playfulness. 
play states and laughing and being playful is an actually opposite state in our nervous system of threat and danger. So for example, when it comes to people being silly, like they're getting ready to go meet someone and be like, I wonder if their name is, um, leaf blower silly pants what do you think their name's going to be like just bringing silly and playfulness to it It, it, in fact back to the mummy example the mummy in the bathroom um and we wrote about this in the whole brain child i had my nephew take charge of it i was like okay so if there's a mummy that lives in your bathroom what do you think he looks like and i had my sister get him one of those markers you could write on the mirror and he drew the mummy and then i said okay liam every time you go into the bathroom i want you to add something funny to the to the (laughs) So he eventually had, he, you know, this was a four-year-old boy. So he had parts, body, lots of body parts and things coming out of body parts and um, snorkel and uh, goggles and, you know, a shark biting his tushy. And, and so every, what we were doing is recreating a new neural association. So every time we walked into the bathroom, it wasn't a scary mummy. It was hilarious mummy. And so it helped him overcome that fear. So anytime we can bring that playfulness, that silliness, that laughter, it creates a new association of being with people oh that's it, what you're saying actually now uh, I, I think it, it throws me to another fear that's kind of common among kids in that age which is fear of the dark and a lot of time they imagine things um, so that can work as well there absolutely that's what I did with my boys and that's in the book as well um, so then you have them starting imagining okay what do you think are there little puffer fish floating in the ceiling and oh my gosh they're totally freaked out about the stars that they think might pee on them you know whatever you just get you just get silly with it I thought when monsters Inc came out I assume you've seen or I thought that was yes, so <laughs> inspired because it's exactly what you're describing, right? It's, it's yeah. making a movie about that exact subject, and I, I thought it was really beautiful. Um, I want to ask you a question about a different kind of fear, a very, very real fear that is intellectually legitimate. So um, my father died when I was very young, when I was 13 years old, and my mm. kids know that. Um, and about a year ago, uh, when when... They were five or five. Um, One of them says to me, are you going to die? And, you know, first I tried to sort of navigate around it a little bit. And then they came back and they said, well, but but are you going to die soon? And I said, Mm -hmm. no. And this kid is very smart. He said, well, your father did. Why, Why can't you? And so now I found myself backed into a logical corner. I, I'm a you know, big proponent of lying when they're very, very young. But at this point, I couldn't, I couldn't get around it. So I found myself having to explain probability to a five-year-old, right? Look, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the chances that will happen are incredibly low, which just as the words were coming out of my mouth didn't sound so great. Um, right. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. These are legitimate fears that, you know, you can't just wipe them away and say that, no, I'm actually going to be around forever and ever and ever. I will tell you that in my work as a child therapist, I've seen a lot of really anxious kids who are gifted kids, precocious kids who, who cognitively can ask questions way earlier than they're emotionally ready to hear the answers for. So first of all, again, back to us, just because they're asking doesn't mean they should get the whole answer. Right. So we take little babies, just like when they might eventually ask about sex or different things like that. We take baby steps and answering a part, you know, just the beginning of the question and wait for them to ask for more so that we're really kind of 
not going too far in terms of developmental appropriateness. Another thing, so we always want to keep that developmental appropriateness, and that is not based on their cognitive abilities. It's based on their emotional abilities, their, where they are developmentally in terms of that piece. What I would say is that the brain is driven to ask questions and to be to know why and how amazing that this curiosity and this cognitive development is leading your kids to this place where they can ask this question. By the way, and I have a really good answer for you, but I have to say this too. Kids typically, and most people don't know this, around the ages four to six, and especially between five and seven, kids often go through another bout of significant separation anxiety or other kinds of anxieties, like not wanting to go to the bathroom by themselves, not wanting to go upstairs by themselves, because it's evidence of a new cognitive growth, um, a new cognitive development spurt that they can now imagine bad things happening, parents dying, someone breaking into the upstairs bathroom and murdering me, right? They can imagine these things now in a new way, but they don't have the emotional capacity to regulate the feelings around that. So it's really typical for kids developing. And anytime you see it, you're like, great, their brain is developing, but it's never synchronous, right? So cognitively they're whatever. Okay. So how do we handle these moments when they're real legitimate fears? The first thing is we can hold the load of the fear that of the, of assuring them they want that assurance from us so instead of getting into all the nitty-gritty you can say yes buddy everybody dies but it's going to be so 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 long you will be such an old man with gray hair and you said all those things and you can really just say it's so far away. You don't even have to think about it. And by the way, that's a great thing when they first start asking about sex, because oftentimes when you start describing the mechanisms of what's actually happening, they can get really grossed out. And then you can say to them, this seems gross to you right now because you're a kid and a kid with a kid brain and a kid body. But when you're an adult with an adult brain and an adult body, it will, it won't seem so gross. So I don't know, the adult don't body know. part of me likes it, but the brain still thinks it's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but really just say to them, you know what, you don't have to you're not gonna have to do that for a really long time. So you don't have to worry about that right now. So right. what we're doing is we're holding the burden of that is you don't have to worry about that for and and if they say but it happened to your dad, you can say yes, but that is so rare, right? And then but then you don't go into the specifics. You just yeah. say, you know, that's not something that is not something you have to worry about. And then of course, you know, yes, accidents do happen, things do happen. And it's so much better to just say you are not going to have to worry about that but, and you be wrong about that than to have them it, hold um, the possible. So does it border with uh, the not don't, you don't have to worry about that? Doesn't doesn't it border with uh, belittling their emotions? Mm. Not that's a great question. No, you legitimize how they're feeling like, yeah, that's scary. If you think about that, that's really scary yeah. um, to think about. And you don't have to worry about that. Not for such a, such a long time. So where, where you'd be minimizing or say, you know, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry. Like, just don't even, you don't even have to ask about that. Okay. Like it's totally, it's part of it's the tone and the feel in the moment as well as how you're right. saying it. Right. Okay. I want, I want to get you into like, I think Alex and mine's biggest dilemma at the moment. Um, and it's regarding to uh, strangers. We see a man in the park or people in the park And so on one hand, we want to warn them about the, the option of being, you know, kidnapped, whatever, there's a the, stranger the, there. The, the risk. Uh, people are mean, can be mean, and can do harm stuff. On the other way, on the other hand, we want to raise kids who are friendly, who are, um, 
you know, they open. open, they have energy and they think, and they don't think that all the world is scary, full of people who want to harm them. How can we balance between these two? Again, we are setting the tone for that. If you're, if you're, if you're giving visible cues of freaking out and being hypervigilant, that's, they're going to pick up all of that. Right. So what we want to do is have my, my colleague, um, Ned Johnson has this great phrase called a non-anxious presence. So we want to have a non-anxious presence while assuring them, I'm going to keep you safe. You don't have to be hypervigilant, terrified all the time because I've got you. Right. So that's what we're coming is, you know, um, in our book, the power of showing up, we talk about how what kids need most from us is to feel safe, seen. That's the, validating the emotions, soothed, I'm right here with you, I've got you, I will help you. And then secure and knowing we're going to keep showing up for them and giving them those safe, seen, soothed and secure. And that's what we know um, sets them up for the best possible development. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what I would say about that. Because the we fear here is our- more the parents rather than the kids, right? right? right. Okay. So we want to we want to assure them, like, I've got you, like, give them that felt sense of safety, that neuroception of safety. So here's what I would say is it changes over time, right? Like when you have a three and four year old, you know, the language I used is if I can't see you, it's hard for me to keep you safe. But it's still giving this impression of like, I'm going to keep you safe, but I need to be able to see you. So you need to stay close to me. And that's important. You know, they need to practice the no and the limits and the boundaries Um, because that will help them feel safe and that will help them create predictability in their life too. And they know that we've got those boundaries. That's good safety feeling for them. So that would be language we would use when they're younger. My favorite language around this, I learned it from Patty Fitzgerald from Safely Ever After. And I actually told my pediatrician about this because she talked about stranger danger. That's confusing to kids because strangers are friendly and they are people who help us. Yeah. And we meet strangers all the time. So the language I use from Patty is um, talking about tricky people, people who trick you, people who are not safe people, which are not necessarily strangers, right? They're often your family members. There are family members of the ones that are most dangerous to our kids, the people we know when it comes to sexual abuse and those kinds of things. So what we want to do is tell our kids like, When you have a kid who's kind of watching someone and they're kind of pulling back, this is all part of consent to like, don't force your kids to hug someone that they're uncomfortable with. They're in charge of their own bodies, you know, all. So we do these things, you know, during bathtub time, your kids are starting to touch each other's private parts. That's a great moment to say, you can touch your own private parts, but you don't get to touch anybody else's private parts, right? You have, and so, you know, the only person that can touch your private parts is you or dads or doctor when dads are in the room, right? Yeah. So we want to use these opportunities. We tell our kids, if someone is, is telling, like I always told my kids, if my, if anybody tells you that you have to keep a secret, that is not okay. Any secret you need to That's come and secret. talk, tell me yeah. about. So, yeah, so so we really empower them in micro moments all the time. But in the moment, let's say you're at a park, you can say, I need to have I need to be able to if you can't see me, I can't see you. I need to be able to see you to keep you safe. And then you teach your kids and safely ever after is Patty's website. She's got all kinds of great stuff on there is to say, if someone makes you feel uncomfortable, you have a really wise brain and body pay attention to that and come and tell us because there are people who try to trick people. It's not very many people, but trust yourself and you can always come and talk to us. So, and then as they get older, the conversations are about guns in people's homes and, you know, the conversations change over time and and the language we use, but we want to be mostly giving them the message. We're going to keep you safe. And then as they get older and have more and more freedoms, you can keep yourself safe. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we have to wrap it up, but um, the, we have to wrap it up. I know. I have, I have like hours more material to ask her. I know, um, and and that's um, and and you mentioned your your book, The Power of Showing Up. Uh, I I I will recommend it after, um, but it's um, in in one word. I think the the four things that you mentioned it's safe, safe. seen, soothed, and secured um, are highly important, and we can continue talk talk about it on the show. What I did w- want to ask you um, in regards to this book is. If you can explain the difference between showing up to your kids and solving them problems, because I think there's a little of a mixed understanding on where the line is. Yeah, when we solve all their problems, again, we communicate to them that I don't trust you can handle things in the world. And it actually creates some fragility for them. Um, Showing up is really about bringing our presence. So here's the punchline of this over 70 years of cross-cultural research is that one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. Has nothing to do with attachment parenting. This is under the umbrella of developmental psychology. We can look at it in mammals. Attachment is our biological instinct to get close to and be protected by um, someone, particularly when there is a threat or we feel vulnerable. So especially when we're feeling afraid or something like that, our biggest instinct is to get close to someone who will connect with us and protect us. So that's where the four S's come in is how we cultivate that secure attachment. That's one of the best predictors for how our kids' brains development and how they have healthy relationships going forward, et cetera. So the first thing we do is we help them feel safe. And, and one of the big parts of that that we talk about in the book is that um, when we, sometimes we are the source of, of course, it's protecting them from harm, but a lot of times we're the ones that give them cues for threat when we lose our cool and we scream and yell, or we act like crazy people. Um, and one of the best things from this research, which is full of hope is that when we mess up, as long as we make the repair with our kids, it's actually healthy for them. It actually builds resilience. So, you know, after I throw the dice across the room in a moment of craziness, because my boys are fighting and I lose it and I throw the dice across the room and scream at them, to stop. And once I gather myself to say, Oh guys, I am so sorry. I just did that. I got really angry and I did not handle that. Well, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? Can I have a do over? That must've been scary, you know, whatever. So we just make the repair. And if we do that, it's good for our kids. I love that. I love that, that freedom there. Cause we will, we mess up all the time. Yeah. The second S is about scene. We talked about that, that idea a lot in this episode where we're really tuning into the mind behind the behavior. We're not just focused on, you know, go to camp. We're really saying like, how are you, you know, it seems like you're feeling unsure. You're feeling a little tentative. You're not sure what to expect. You're freaked out. You might have to do ballet, you know? And so we're really kind of swimming past the behavior. We could spend two hours just talking about this because as a society, we're super focused on the behavior. Your kid, you give your kids something, they pout. And we're like, you're so spoiled. And we miss the fact that they feel disappointment and disappointment's a legit human emotion, et cetera. So anyway, scene is really about tuning into the internal world. Soothed is we help them. So in that moment this morning at camp drop off and you guys are there and you show up in that moment and you're really like, this is hard. Let's go find a teacher and talk to them about it. And let's, you know, you're going to have some fun things happen today. That's all part of soothing. Soothing is also physical comforts, fuzzy blankets, comfort food. Like it can be, it can be sensory as well. My favorite thing about soothing is that once I learned this research, 
I found myself so many times, um, I'll tell a quick story, my son, maybe seven or something, um, mad that he didn't get to stay up later with his older brothers. It's, but I'm really, I was really militant about bedtime when they were young. And so I'm in the bed, I'm, I'm getting ready to snuggle and read books. And, um, and he's flopping like a fish out of water because he's so pissed that he has to go to bed. And what I used to spend a lot of attention and energy doing is trying to fix it or solve it or distract or, or, I might even throw out threats like, okay, buddy, if you're going to do that, like I'm done, I'm not reading to you tonight. You put yourself to bed. Like I, those are the things I would do. But once I saw, once I learned this literature and practiced all this stuff um, over decades and he's my third, I got better at it over time. I, all I really had to do to show up in that moment was bring my presence. And so what I could say to him is you're really mad. You have to go to bed. It feels unfair. The brothers are staying up. That's really hard. Isn't it buddy? And here's the soothing part. I'm right here with you while you feel it. That's it. And what happens in that moment, so I'm helping him feel safe because I'm holding my boundary and I'm staying the calm in the storm. I'm not joining the storm with my own, you know, tsunami scene. I tune into his experience. I name it soothed. I'm right here with you while you feel it. And when I do that, I'm communicating to him. I trust that you can handle this big emotion. And you can trust that I can handle your big emotions. And what's amazing about this is the way that our children become resilient over their fears or any kind of adversity is by practicing dealing with difficult things with enough support. Fragility comes about when our kids deal with difficult things without support. So as long as we're bringing our presence, we're showing up, we're doing our best, then the fourth S of security comes from having not perfect, but repeated experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed. Then they feel secure in knowing you will always show up for them. So it's not about so much what we do as much as who we are and how we are with them. As we walk through these daily moments of discipline, um, dealing with, you know, conflict, all of these things. And what's amazing then is our kids brains then wired so that they can show up for themselves. They learn to keep themselves safe and see and understand themselves and soothe themselves and show up for other people. And that's what we really want. So all the time we have to really stay away from our really our basic need to really solve it for them. You know, when we lift weights, we, get, we do reps, we build those muscles. The best thing we can do in those kind of moments after validating feelings and all that is um, give, let, give them some cognitive reps of solving themselves, like entrusting them. So in discipline moments, all the time I would say to my kids, like I, even at five, I could say, I know, you know, that wasn't okay. So what are you going to do to make things right? And how do you think we should handle this? Um, what are you going to do differently next time? And I'm putting the cognitive load on them. Um, same thing with, you know, I'm freaking out about this or, you know, bedtimes are really hard for me or I'm upset. I don't want to go back to school. Be like, you know what? All kids feel that way. Of course, it's scary to go back to school or to try something new. And I know that you're a problem solver. So what do you think is going to help or what, how would you, you know, and so much of the time it's the doing for like, you know, middle school, high school, parents are still emailing teachers for kids. No, you say to your kid, like, what do you think would help? Do you, and you might even suggest, do you think emailing your teacher might be helpful? I'm happy to sit with you while you write the email, or I'm happy to look at the email before you send it. It's not like we're saying you go solve it. I don't want to have anything to do with it, but we're not doing it for them. We're doing it with them or encouraging them to do it with our support. Got it. All right. Uh, my, my takeaway from this is shockingly parenting is apparently difficult. I, <laughs> <laughs> didn't realize that until just now. Let me say, let me assure you yeah. one on one thing like that. The thing your kids need most from you 
is you. Flawed you, imperfect you, whatever. Just you showing up the best you can is the best thing. And we can make mistakes all the time. So give yourself some freedom, take some of the pressure off, just be you and show up as best you can. You know, it's wonderful because for the flawed you, they have my husband. <laughs> and the- for the perfect you, they have me. So together. I stand. I, I'm all out for that. I'm the flawed. <laughs> Dr. Tina Pryan Bryson, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really, really helpful for us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, Daddy Square, the Gay Dads podcast with Jan. And Alex. We're back from the interview, and Tina talked about the four S's, safe, seen, soothed, and secure. I like that, uh, you know, they have these lists that we just want to not have it in our pocket, but, you know, every now and then just go back to it and yeah. see if, um, you know, how we're doing. I like that. I have to say, we we spend a lot of time on this podcast uh, laughing about our own inability as parents. Um, I think that this is one of the areas that we do decently well. I think that, you know, our kids know that they have the the safety and the stability of us. And I think that we do a relatively, I was, you know, as we were having that interview, I was thinking, how much of this do we do? And this is just one episode in which I'm willing to say, I think we're doing pretty well. They made a list of the things that our kids are afraid of right now. Oh. It's not a lot, but it's it's meaningful stuff. So our kids are seven, and the three biggest things that, that we have, we're dealing with right now is fear of one of us dies. Yeah. Which is so weird. They're so already so... In, um, fascinated by death and everything that's surrounding it yeah so we keep coming back to it every time but from a different like a higher level of understanding and you know they really want to know about this but but they they get really afraid when we talk about this they're seven years old now and i will say my feeling is we're still i'm still not ready to talk about death in its detail yes i'm willing to sort of explain at a high level that this means you know that the person or the dog or whatever will won't be around for us to talk to anymore but i'm not willing to go a lot further than that yet did you say that you can't talk to them anymore I think I said that they won't be around for you to see. Oh, because I say to them, well, you can talk to them in your dreams. They come to you and you can talk. Yeah, I dig that. I mean, you know, that I'm not as spiritually as you are, but I still believe in that concept that you can. I I still speak to my father who died when I was 13. So, yeah, sure. So the other two are um, fear of new places. It's mostly for one of our kids. Um, and fear of the dark. These are the things that are, I think. It's interesting because only one of our kids has a fear of the, of the dark. It's the just, one who has fear of new places. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also the one who's like, always want to see, you know, stuff that he's going to be afraid of. But then at night, he's going to be afraid of them. Well, that's actually. Which is weird. Like, I really love Charmed. I'm a Charmedaholic. Homosexual. So I uh, shut up. So I'm. Uh, <laughs> I really. I'm excited to really for my kids to get to, into that show. But you know, it's it's scary because it has demons and and yeah. um and death Bad a acting. lot. Stop it. <laughs> To our listener, Alyssa Milano, I'm really... I no, no, actually, I think she's pretty good. And, and Holly Marie Combs. Oh. So, um, so he really wants to... He sees me watching it, and he wants to watch it so bad. And I keep telling him it's scary, and he's like, it's not scary for me. And then 
Of you course know, it is. At night, it is scary yeah. for him. So please. Well, no, look, I think it's interesting you should mention because I think it is part of a parent's job to realize what a kid might feel fine with during the day that they are not going to feel fine about at night. Yeah. It's 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 a thing, you know, for sure. Yeah. Men having babies. We just had a, a successful uh, event in Chicago men for gay men who wants to have kids through surrogacy. And there's another uh, conference of men having babies in New York in November. Um, we get one of the MHB staff to talk to us every episode about some element of having kids through surrogacy, just the ABC, you know, to get you uh, into the world of uh, gay men who are having kids through surrogacy, or if you are one and want to know more details. And just a reminder, uh, it, 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 it sounds like we're shilling for them. We are. They are a wonderful nonprofit organization that helps uh, disseminate information about having kids through surrogacy and also helps financially. So, you know, pay attention. Yes. So in this episode, Ron Puldian, uh, the executive director of the organization, will talk about choosing your surrogacy destination and why does MHB advocates for surrogacy in the U.S. and Canada. So let's hear from Ron. This is Men Having Babies Corner. We're often asked about uh, surrogacy destinations outside of the United States and Canada where most of the, uh, our members choose to have their surrogacy journey. We obviously feel very comfortable with the set of uh, standards and best practices in those two countries. And the reason we're concerned about pursuing uh, surrogacy in other destinations is that those standards have real implications on the safety and the rights of the parties involved and their long-term well-being. For example, if there is a country where, which is often the case outside of the United States and Canada, uh, where you can get the obstetric records of the surrogate candidates, then there's no way to assure that we are minimizing the medical risk since pregnancy is a risky medical procedure. And if in some of those countries, uh, independent representation cannot be assured for the surrogate, and if there are no guarantees that she will not be asked to uh, live apart from her family and children for many months, then those are all big concerns for us, let alone the fact that some of the surrogacy destinations people are discussing recently include even countries where homosexuality is still criminalized and where you can actually get into legal trouble for just visiting and maybe spending a night together with your partner. Men Having Babies has both a set of guidelines on our website uh, with the issues that you should look into before you make a decision, as well as our legal advisory committee has come up with specific points about some of the most uh, common destinations people are looking into with an assessment about each one of those concerns so that you are able to make a, a more informed decision on your own, whether you're willing to take the legal, personal, and ethical uh, risks associated with each one of them. For more information, go to menhavingbabies.org. Thank you, Men Having Babies, and thank you, Ron Puldayan. Um, the safety and rights of dad and surrogates are, is so important, and I have to tell you, like, full disclosure right here, I was approached by a surrogacy agency in a country where being gay is illegal, and they <laughs> wanted to sponsored the whole season of our podcast and we right. said no because we would not 
put the dads or the dads to be in danger yeah when they go into another country so you have to really make sure that you know the the legal aspect of everything and how they treat the women uh, some countries will tell you okay you can have surrogacy but you have to marry the surrogate right in order to do that so <laughs> it's really I'm saying you Of course you want it to be as cheap as you can as as low cost as possible in order to afford it but on the other hand please think about the surrogates think about what you have to do in order to do that and think about the babies that are born like yep. what kind of story do you want to tell them when when they grow up so all of these things matter and I think that's part of the mission of men having babies um, it's called ethical surrogacy and I'm tro- totally behind that that's good I want to talk about last night. My husband and I were sitting on the couch and watching television. A little backstory first. For those of you who are already parents, uh, at least if you're in America, you know what Gogurt is. If you are an intended parent or you're thinking about it, Gogurt is yogurt that's been stuffed into a tube because uh, kids like it that way. Um, on the go. And, uh, on the go. Gogurt, as you can see. We're, so we're sitting on the couch and there's this ad, a Target ad or something like that, and they and they go. They suddenly show some gogurt that they sell at that store and they say, "Little hint, freeze your gogurt in the morning and it'll be thawed out and ready to eat by your kids by lunchtime." And my husband and I turned to each other and said at the same time, "Oh, that's interesting." And then I realized, "Oh my God, what has happened to my life? I used to sit around and think about what Ben Bernanke was saying about the markets and like Angela Merkel was doing with Europe, and now I find it interesting that you can freeze gogurt. And it's really going to be ready by lunch. <laughs> that's that's so, so efficient. So sad. Daddy Square, the Gay You Dads podcast, we're about to leave, but... I want to talk about the birthday. Our kids had their ber- seventh birthday. Yes. Um, and if you've been listening to us since the first season when they were three, um, I think pretty much every year we discuss their birthday parties. So I want Alex to kind of zoos uh, you in, like booze you oh, in into the, uh, into the environment of what was it like to have a birthday party, a seventh birthday party of Ben and Adam. All right, so, so several things. I did want it to be a really great party. We didn't have a birthday party for the last two years because of the pandemic, and this was our chance to have a really good time with them. And, and I'll tell you something, I, I mean this, um, You do feel a sense of like having to show that you can do a good birthday party so that the other parents can see. But the real question is, do you end up having a party that your own kids and all the other kids who come have a great time at? And it is funny because when you look at it from that lens, the activities and the things that you have to do are so much simpler than when you think about it from the perspective of the parents. You know, think about it from the perspective of the parents, you have to have like pate de foie gras and who knows what else. When you think about it from the perspective of the kids, you do what my husband set up, which was a set of games that were just so excellent and the kids had such a good time. I'm going to describe some of them for you right now. Uh, one, you tie a candle to, to like the belt of each child, like something that goes around their waist that hangs down from their butt. And then there is a bottle on the ground and they have to stoop over it. And while the, the, the candle kind of swings back and forth on the string, they have to get the, 
the 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 candle into the bottle without using the hands. I have to tell you, it sounds so ridiculous. They had such a good time. Yeah, they loved. They it. had such a good time with the thing where there are two kids and they have to put a balloon between them and they have to hug each other as hard as possible to pop the balloon. These things are excellent. And what we might do is put a list of them on the Daddy Squared episode page for this episode. Only if you ask. Oh, all right. You have to ask. What? Anyway. I don't know. Like, I want to. I want to have a relationship with uh, with our listeners. I so, um, uh, while we're wrapping up this episode, we would love to hear from you at hello at daddysqr.com or on Instagram at daddysqr. Please write to us. Even say hi. Judge us. Whatever. We oh, say- my lo- My husband loves being judged. Yes. Judge him. <laughs> and we say it a lot. You know, this is a passion project for us, and yeah. we want to. It will mean a lot to us to hear from you guys and get some feedback and know that we're, you know, we're putting out an episode, but right. we want to know that you received every, it. Every email that we receive is such a, it really is, I mean, except for one or two that we'd rather not talk about. Every email that we receive is feels so good to hear back from the listeners and uh, to try to use it as a loop to figure out how the series can go moving forward. And if you want to be extra nice to us, then you can go on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast and leave us some stars and some reviews, you know? Just say that we're nice people. That's fine. Well, you don't have to do that. There's no reason to lie, but it can be a good podcast. All right. Um, That's it for now. I'm Jan. I'm Alex. And we're going to see you next time on Daddy Square, the Gay Dads Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye.